Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation and leadership all around the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triaka. So in this week's episode, I speak with Lisa Gray, who is the CEO of the Victorian Fund Management Corporation here in Melbourne. Lisa's career spans over 25 years, and prior to VFMC, she's worked across executive roles at NAB, MLC, and AXA. She's also the winner of the Telstra Business Women's Award for Medium Enterprises and the prestigious Robert Murdoch Fellowship for Leadership and Management. I really enjoyed this conversation. It covered so much of Lisa's vast knowledge in leading for strong cultures and innovation. She covers her on-the-couch technique for sharing teams' backstories and creating more connection while teams are distributed at the moment. She talks about some challenges and some success in creating a culture of innovation, especially in the context of financial services, and also shares some great ways that leaders can encourage more creativity in their team. And if you are a leader who at the moment is working on the strategy or thinking about how you approach strategy at this time, you'll be really interested in how Lisa talks about replacing detailed roadmaps uh, with a more agile strategic agenda. So we really hope you enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. Well, hi there, Lisa. Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast. Hi, Fiona. Wonderful to be here to be talking with you. (laughs) We've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I mean, it's crazy times that we're in right now. So before, you know, the first question I really like to ask at the moment is how are you? How are you doing through all of this? I'm well and and able to connect well with people, uh, live within my five kilometres that I need to. I'm fortunate I have my children uh, with me as well. And as a company, we're able to work 100% remote. Mm. There are times though, well, many people aren't great though. And so many people go up and down and vary from day to day. So there are times actually when I think, oh, is it okay for me to be feeling fine? That's such a common feeling as well, isn't it? That you, you know, it's, it's, I guess, as a leader from your perspective, that's part of your job, isn't it? To have that empathy for, you know, what everybody else is feeling on the team. How, how have you in your leadership tried to handle some of that roller coaster that some of the team might be going on at the moment? I think the first thing we do and we're trying to do and talk very openly about is acknowledging that we're all going to go up and down and acknowledging that everyone's feelings and experiences are completely legitimate. They're different. Uh, And so I really try to encourage people to have empathy, first of all, uh, and and to talk about when they're up and down and to reach out uh, to each other. One of the things we're finding is that people, there's a real uncertainty and this prolonged uncertainty uh, at the moment and a sense of loss or grief, even though they're finding it perhaps hard to articulate what it is uh, they feel they're losing. But there is that sense of loss. So we're also particularly really trying to make sure people are connected. And we're doing that in a whole range of very practical ways. Some of them are things we were always doing uh, but now doing in a remote way such as you know, every week at the start of the week I send a note to everyone just about things that might be on my mind, what I'm working on or 
acknowledging some things that people are going through, uh, mm-hmm. such as people with you know, elderly relatives and parents, uh, which is a really difficult time. Mm-hmm. I also, once a week, uh, towards the end of the week, we have a whole of organisation stand-up. Again, we're doing it on video. We used to stand around uh, our common common room and we talk about what's going on. Others can also update. Uh, but it's where I try to be very clear and direct mm. where things are difficult or complex but also bring some humour and hope and talk about the future as well. Something which I've started recently is what we call on the couch Because one of the things with everyone working 100% remotely is you miss those incidental catch-ups and connections with people or finding out what's going on in people's lives where you get to see their whole backstory. So it's a one-on-one interview that I do with one person each week, anyone from the organisation, and we learn more about their history, their backstory, their personal situations, also how they are going uh, through COVID as well. So to really round out the whole person. Mm. I think though the, the other thing, you talked about leadership and I think now is the time for leaders and now is really the time for leaders to be stepping up. I love that concept of on the couch. I think that's beautiful. That sounds like that's something that's going to stay around potentially after all of this as well, maybe when we get back to some semblance of normality. Um, can I can I keep on going on that point there, Lisa, around, you know, this is the time for leadership. This is the time for leaders stepping up. What does that mean to you? What's an example of that, do you think, that we need to see? Well, we've been spending the last few years really trying to uplead, uplift our leaders' people leadership, commercial leadership, strategic leadership. They're terrific technical investment leaders, but that whole sense of leadership. Mm -hmm. And right now that's really coming into the fore. And, you know, we're really starting to see a leadership dividend Mm -hmm. from that. And so what's really important about leadership right now is, you know, as much as people and our people are very analytical, uh, really driven on data, you know, sometimes they were just like us to say, give us the rules, tell us what we need to do, and we'll go and implement it. Well, right now, where we're working in, we're working in over 110 different locations Mm -hmm. with everyone working remotely. Every situation is different. Every individual's personal situation and home situation is different, and each team needs different things at different times. Mm -hmm. So, Leaders need to be making local decisions and they need to be making those decisions. Mm. It's hard, though. They need to make those decisions, though, looking at the bigger picture and having full context of what's important and what isn't and knowing where the parameters are. Mm. They also need to exercise judgment. And so what I do as the leader of the organisation is one, continue to ask them to step up and to do that, mm. uh, but also know that they will be backed. Yeah. They will exercise the right choices, work with their teams, mm. do what they think is the right thing at that point in time, knowing it will change over time, but knowing that they're backed. Mm. Is that something that you have always been a big believer in? So it sounds like you were doing this preparation long before any of these recent events happened. You talked about that starting to pay a bit of a leadership dividend. Are these beliefs you've always had or how has, that's one part of the question, and how have some of those beliefs about leadership started to shift in recent times? I think I've always been a believer in leadership 
being critical to any organisation, mm-hmm. but leadership being something that is distributed. So it's not about the CEO or the executive team. Leaderships, some people are in leadership positions, Mm -hmm. uh, so expectations are higher on those people. Mm -hmm. But we all have the opportunity uh, to demonstrate leadership. And that is about not stepping over something that you see in the moment that's perhaps not the Mm -hmm. right thing or something could be better. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about people having a voice Uh, And so for me as the CEO of the organisation, one of my criteria for success as the leader of the whole team is that, you know, fundamentally the similar choices can be made regardless of who is in the room. Mm. But you can only do that if people have clear context about the strategy, the direction, values, what's important, uh, and they have the right information to do that. So I've always been a believer of full access uh, of information so people can make those choices in the moment. Mm. So a big one on transparency of, you know, uh, the decisions that are being made at a senior level, is that something that you're a big believer in? Definitely. So continually help people understand that, you know, life and leadership is about choices and trade-offs. Inevitably... There's not necessarily a right or wrong decision. They're fundamentally choices you make based on the data you have at that point in time. And I find that a really liberating concept because too many times, and people who are really clever and analytical struggle with this, they keep wanting more and more data before they're ready to make the decision. If you reframe it as a choice based on making the most preferred choice at that point in time based on the data, based on your understanding of what's important, then anyone can make a choice. Mm-hmm. So it's it's liberating, but it's also then distributed decision-making across the whole organisation. But you have to be transparent. And as a leader too, you also have to be clear about why I'm making this choice now based on what I see and what I understand. Mm-hmm. And you also need to free yourself up to make a better choice down the track if the situation changes or new data arises. Mm -hmm. So you're not anchored in, wow, I made that choice previously, therefore I can't possibly now change. And Mm -hmm. if you think about things that go wrong in organisations, so many times it's because people feel they can't make another choice or a new choice. That is such a fantastic insight of that, that we don't want to be boxing ourselves into those corners. And there's so much of a link between what you've just spoken about there and a lot of the practices that, of course, we use in innovation around creating a hypothesis based on the information that we've got and sometimes taking a great leap to what might be the unknown. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, even building that link there between leadership and innovation, I know you are a leader that is very passionate about innovation across levels, especially people-driven innovation. Tell us what that means for you at VFMC right now, Lisa. Well, I think just as everyone has the opportunity to exercise leadership, Mm. innovation is everyone's job as well. Mm -hmm. And so often people think that innovation is about this big new R&D, a new product or some great blue sky thinking, and sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But many times 
Innovation is something we do about how we continue to improve what we're doing day to day, how we do what we, our own core job better and better, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, looking out over weeks and months into the future, how can we do things faster, more easily, better for customers? So, and that's everyone's job to be able to innovate because if you don't do that, by definition, you end up going backwards as an Mm organisation. Do you think it's every leader's responsibility to be thinking like that? I think it is. But I also think it's every team member's responsibility to think like that too. Mm. The role that the leader plays is to unleash that energy that is Mm. there. Um, I mean, how many times do you hear people say, oh, I'm not creative, therefore I can't be innovative? You know, I I wasn't great at drawing when I was a child. I'm simplifying it. But you do hear that and people you know, we're boxed at quite an early day. So to me, part of the role of leadership in the context of innovation is to unleash, Mm. unleash the creativity we all have, Mm. to look at things in a different way, to have a fresh set of eyes and to improve how we do things. Mm. So, you know, leadership is about unleashing that. Part of that can be helped by putting, you know, different frameworks and processes in place so people at least have a vehicle by which they can use to have a conversation, some shared language, and to challenge in a way that is safe. Mm. And I find often, you know, particularly an organisation like ours, you know, a lot of people have worked together for 10 years or more. Mm. There's respect, there's trust. Uh, But sometimes it's hard to challenge something that has been done for a long time because it can feel like you're challenging the person who often might be your leader, your people leader. So how do you create an environment where you can do that? So tools and processes help, but leaders also have to encourage people to do that as well and respond uh, in ways of new ideas, show by their behaviours that they're really open to doing that. Mm. In two huge parts of and often underrated parts of the innovation process that you're talking about there, that first setting up psychological safety where people feel free to put things forward, you know, without fear of being shut down or, you know, any kind of retribution because of it. And also something that I've heard you speak about before, which is that ability to respectfully challenge what has come before and a need for leaders to be prepared to do that. And it sounds like these are environments that you're setting up. What would you like to see BFMC get to in the future in terms of some of these behaviours or even outcomes? I think it's ultimately as a leader you're trying to create things that are self-sustaining and Mm -hmm. self-propelling so they're not reliant on any one individual regardless of who they are. Uh, And so to do that, it's partly giving people the courage or enabling people to be courageous. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, I'm hoping at VFMC that with some of the tools we're putting in place, the processes, creating different forums to have the conversation. You don't have to come up with the end game immediately. It's what are you noticing? What are you sensing? And then how do you make sense of that? And then ultimately, you know, design what is possible. You know, this notion uh, that we've certainly learned from Naked Ambition around how might we? Uh, and that's really sparked conversation, which is mm-hmm. terrific. 
Sometimes it's just the initial conversation that's really important. But if you can unleash that through the organisation and people know they can do that, starting with small improvements, such as how we might do a particular investment process, for Mm. example, or how we're working with our custodian. Just simple things, if they can speed things up, make it simpler, reduce the risk of error. I think the other thing for me is this notion of permission. You know, so many times small organisations, large organisations, I certainly saw this, you know, when I worked at a major bank for many, many years. Mm. People have this feel that they need to ask for permission or they don't yet know who's going to make the decision. And big organisations, private and public, uh, are notorious for that. Uh, But that can happen in small ones too, which I was quite surprised when I arrived uh, at, at VFMC. So how do people know that you actually have permission all the time. Mm. And one of the things I look at is when a crisis occurs. Mm. So if you think, you know, I can think of a few examples. So if you think about particularly in our country and in our state of Victoria, you know, natural disasters, Mm. floods, bushfires, cyclones. Uh, And if I think about my time at a major bank, you know, when we were encountered bushfires particularly or cyclones, particularly up in Queensland, you know, what happens in a crisis is the natural hierarchies and boundaries instantly fall away. Mm. The right people get together because they know They have a clear focus about what needs to happen. Mm. They know what they need to do. They know who they need to pull into the room as such to make those decisions and then get on with it. Mm. And they also know that they'll be backed and they'll have the support of the organisation. Even through COVID, uh, we see that. Now, if you think about people working remotely or working from home while there have been many organizations and many individuals who've embraced that for many many years this is not a new thing Mm. Um, and we probably coming into COVID had about a third of our people very regularly working remotely or in flexible working uh, arrangements Mm. but there were others and they're around the whole world, who had this notion of presenteeism or if I don't see you, how do I know you're working or how do people know I'm working kind of Mm -hmm. notion. So, But overnight when we had to move to working 100% remotely and we had the technology in place to do that and the culture in place Mm -hmm. uh, to do that, people quickly worked out in their teams what they needed to do, their leaders were in touch with them all the time and they were backed. And so, you know, we were catapulted into 100% and people will not go back. But leaders, as I said before, leaders have stepped into those moments and team members have stepped up uh, as well. Mm. And more on that, that lasting change, I think that we're going to start to see some of that, those things that on the positive, because we do hear so much about things will never be the same and, you know, I don't know whether it's the sort of media saturation or all the bad news that we're hearing so constantly that there tends to be that that negativity. So it's so good to hear you talking there, Lisa, about some of the the amazingly positive things that are coming out of this and people's ability organizationally able to step up and also at at every single level, individual level and leaders as well. So that's a really inspiring message, I think. 
I would love there, because you've now touched on the behavioural aspects of the sorts of change and impact that you're trying to drive at VFMC, but obviously in your career more broadly. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about strategy right now? You know, how you're, I know that you're thinking about the new strategy for VFMC. How is that evolving in your mind? And maybe what are some of the shifts that are going on there as well? When um, the, the, our strategic plan at the moment is called the 2020 Strategic Plan, which we put in place at the end of 2016. Mm. Uh, and so when you name something after a year, uh, <laughs> by definition you have to keep refreshing. And we've been really pleased with, you know, the evolving transformation uh, of the organisation, which people have been completely part of and have embraced and taken in, in various directions. And so we'd probably in relatively traditional ways put in place roadmaps, uh, you know, strategic plans, initiatives and, and so forth. Mm. As we think now about our beyond 2020 work, we're first of all using different language and I think language is important. Mm. So it's our strategic agenda. You know, we're deliberately not using the word plan because plans imply things into the future are known. Mm. Lots of very clear timeframes. Yeah. Resourcing is known, all mm. those sorts of things. An agenda has an agility and a flexibility to it, but there's a purpose to it. It is definitely mm. going uh, in particular directions, but there's an ability to flex, to change sequence, uh, to do things in different ways. So we're looking at, you know, being clear about our aspirations over this next few years uh, and what our strategic objectives are, you know, very around optimising aspects, simplifying things and really future readying our culture and capability. Mm. And what we've done is start to devise some key groups or clusters of initiatives that will make sense. Some will be no regrets under any set of scenarios as we live with uh, COVID for the foreseeable future. Mm. Uh, others will be things that are really, you know, could be quite transformational but may not work under all scenarios. But that doesn't mean we don't start to explore those. Yeah. So then that comes to, well, how do you lead through that? How do you monitor that? How do you resource? And, you know, we've been, like many organisation organisations, we have a change committee, we have certain things that have business cases, all those aspects to it. So you still need some disciplines, but you need to really start to devolve some of that decision-making to that point of implementation where choices will need to be made. Mm. You know, we need an agenda, not necessarily a very clear roadmap, which means you need to be checking in more frequently yeah. but not slowing things down. And I think here's the, the paradox at some mm. level as to how do leaders you know, have a sense of what they need to do but know that they need to adjust and be flexible in the moment but don't always have to go up the hierarchy to make those choices. It could be a small design element, uh, an improvement, or it could be actually this doesn't make sense anymore. We need to, dare I say, pivot uh, and, and do something uh, different. So yeah. I'm trying to create a much more agile agenda. It means how we work with our board will be different too. They I mean, of course, they're involved in our strategic conversations, 
but we will have them much more involved on a more regular basis, mm. not, not to micromanage in any way because, in fact, it's the opposite that's required. Mm. It's devolving that decision-making but making sure we're seeing, different, we're seeing similar things, we're not missing things that they're seeing and that we're taking the organisation forward in a much more agile way. Mm. I think that concept of the agenda is really something that a lot of people out there listening to this will grab onto. It's a really interesting and different approach and a needed one, especially when we need to think about evolving strategies exactly as you've explained there. So I think that concept of the agenda is something that a lot of people out there that are listening are really going to grab onto. I can imagine that being something people are really curious about. I'm interested in your style. How do you come to these these sorts of new approaches? Where do you seek inspiration? How consultative are you about coming up with these ways of doing things? Um, or is it to do with the knowledge that you've already got, your career history? I think as leaders, we're all unfinished. So it doesn't matter what you've done, how successful, under whatever conditions that has been, um, we're all unfinished. We continue to learn more about ourselves and others. And I think the world and the context we operate in continues to evolve uh, as well. So, so I certainly always see myself as unfinished uh, and others as unfinished. So part of my role is to continue to help them to grow. Something that's always been important to me as a leader is, uh, I touched on a little bit before, devolving decision-making. Yeah. I don't feel a strong need to be in control. The way I think about things is what is it that only I can give the system? So what is it only that I, in my role, can the decisions can I make, the guidance I can give? And that's what I spend my time on. And other things I devolve and delegate to others who are often better placed to be able to do that, you know, make those decisions for their team or their part of the business. The other thing as a leader where I take guidance from is what is it time for now? Mm. And, you know, people are often in different places, strategies are in different uh, situations, the world is in a different place. So, mm. and the types of conversations you need at different times, sometimes they need to be emergent and sensing and exploratory. Other times they need to be really narrowing down and saying, here's now what we're going to be doing. Yeah. Uh, so it's what is it time for now? Um, mm. Probably the other thing for me is, and I sort of discovered this uh, partway through my career uh, when I was leading a major strategy for one of the major banks, which is the fair value strategy. Um, and it made me realise that what I'm fundamentally passionate about is putting purpose and people and customers at the heart of commercial decision-making. Mm. And too often, even now, which I find extraordinary, uh, you do see people thinking, well, you can't have commercial outcomes and also the right purpose and customer outcomes. Yeah. Well, of course you can. Yeah. Uh, and I found by putting purpose and people and customers at the heart of that commercial decision-making, uh, you can have all of those outcomes. And that helps drive people. People want to be part of something like that. Mm. I agree with you. I think it's still crazy that we have to remind ourselves 
to be customer centered. <laughs> it's almost what else is there? This is, you know, what we're all here for. So I think that's a really nice way to put it. And it's interesting, we're starting to see other organizations talk. I mean, there's always the triple bottom line. And now there's some organizations talking about that quadruple bottom line as well around thinking about social, the social impact and some of this that comes with it as well. Well, you have to live this and make decisions. Yeah. And what happens is when things are going well, uh, leaders can find that or organisations can find that easy to do. Yeah. But it's under pressure or difficult circumstances mm-hmm. where it's the true test. And people in your organisation know that. And so they constantly look and check for is this really true? Is it the spine through our whole organisation that we make choices by? Uh, And you need to really, I found in in my experience with, you know, trying to lead with purpose in a sustainable way, you really need to then create a whole operating rhythm and model through that uh, so people know and the structures and processes and communication are in place to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. That kind of that red thread through everything that you're doing, I think that's great as well. And it is interesting. It's just ev- everyone in the team's always looking for whether they even are consciously or unconsciously looking for that consistency in how you show up and how you role model a lot of that, which is really interesting, Lisa. Staying on some of that role modeling as well, I want to take us back to some of your perspectives on innovation. Again, you've spoken a lot about that behavioural shift and some of the change that you're trying to drive. Do you have any views on the sector more wholly? This is something I'm really passionate about, um, or the industry rather, around I think innovation in financial services is is quite tricky, especially at a people-led perspective, um, whether it is to do with the skill sets or the mindsets or just some of the systems that are in place. So, Lisa, I'm interested in your view on innovation in financial services specifically. Something we hear a lot in our day-to-day work is that it's really challenging. You know, there's a systemic problem um, of getting new things up and running uh, and also a bit of a cultural one as well. What are you, what's your view on that? I think often people think it's some innovation is some huge idea and they link to products and so forth Uh, and and they continue things about product whereas I think in financial services while it could be about a what we would call a product uh, Mm -hmm. some sort of investment vehicle or insurance vehicle or banking uh, type product it could be around that and there have certainly been innovations uh, through the years in all of those areas just think about transaction accounts for example Uh, no longer generally no longer having fees connected with them you can link everything together overdrafts all those sorts of things they were innovations in their time yeah Um, as I look forward say in the investments field that we are in uh, innovation can occur potentially through different types of investment securities and, and products but more often and where it's accessible to everyone can be through processes, uh, Mm -hmm. for example, or through using data and analytics to actually innovate 
and maybe automate some of those things, uh, leaving the wonderful blend of human insight to come together uh, with data and analytics. For for us, for example, about 18 months ago, two years ago, we were looking at what we thought were uncertain environments, nowhere near, uh, it's all about perspective and relativity. (laughs) And we were looking at, look, at some point as we get closer to the end of the economic cycle, Mm. uh, you know, we are going to be finding ourselves in situations we're going to need to make uh, rapid decisions, communicate a lot with clients and with government and so forth, and we won't know what we'll have to be doing but we'll know we'll have to be doing that. So how do we get ready for that? So one of the innovations uh, we put in place was something we call fire drill for the investment processes. Now, if you think about uh, normal operational management, we all have business continuity plans, crisis management plans. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, you certainly have them now. Uh, so, But this was about investment decision-making. So we put in place what we call our fire drill processes about a year or so uh, ago around, well, if markets move certain amounts or in certain extremities, um, who needs to be involved in the decision-making? What types of data might we need to have access to? How do we get people together quickly? Mm. How do we connect with government and let them know or clients and let them know what is going on? might we need some of our strategic partners to be ready to do things quickly? So let's set that up before we ever need it. And then we actually practised that. Mm. And one of the things we did was we do practise our business continuity. We've done that for years and years with the leadership team and different potential crises that occur. So we brought in the investment people to be part of that so they could start to practice as as well. Mm -hmm. So I think in financial services, you know, there are lots of different ways to innovate. And I think part of our roles as leaders is to really label that this is innovation. Mm. A small thing or a big thing, often it will be, as I said, about process or ways we do things or how people interact uh, and speed things up. Mm. It's a really great way to put it as well. You're talking there as well about building creative confidence in the team so we don't have to think that, you know, innovation is just for the fintechs, for example, and it's really about that radical transformational, exactly as you said before, it could be something that's just exactly what we need. I've no doubt that fire drill came in good stead when everything happened recently. It might have been a bit of a lifesaver. Beautiful. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, just going back to your to your career, so I think you've had a really interesting career. You've worked across a lot of different industries and quite a few different types of companies. Is that something that you've done really consciously or was it just more of an evolution and as the opportunities emerge? Can you talk to us about those decisions? So potentially a blend, but probably a little more conscious, but conscious with a flexibility uh, around it. So my undergraduate degree uh, is actually in town planning. So I'm actually a qualified town planner. Uh, But partway through that course, you know, I got involved. We had a subject called organisations and it was all about team dynamics, 
group thinking, all those sorts of things. And I realised that it, it was something I really warmed to and was very intuitive about. Mm. So partway through that course, I decided, okay, I actually want to get more into management and therefore business. And so I started out as a graduate uh, and deliberately moved with AXA, actually, um, mm. who's now part of other organisations. But they're a terrific organisation and I deliberately early on try to get breadth mm. and so that is something I think has always been really important and I always encourage people to get through as early as possible in their career breadth about moving into different areas different disciplines because I think it gives you choice mm. and I think in life and certainly your career having choice or having choice is priceless actually mm. uh, so I very deliberately tried to get different types of experiences and, and that was not just in terms of different areas from, you know, I started off in a process re-engineering area, then moved into product management uh, and other and customer service, marketing, distribution and, and so forth. So getting breadth uh, was important, but also then different types of business cycle experience. So, you know, I've been involved uh, in, I thought I needed different experience, so I ended up leading, uh, being the startup CEO for Plum Financial Services, which was a startup and a joint venture. Mm-hmm. So again, very different experiences. When I moved to MLC, uh, which was part of the National Australia Bank Group at that time, um, I took on a turnaround situation, which was taking on all of their insurance businesses and turning those businesses around. And then when I left uh, that major bank, you know, I was looking for something that would build on those experiences but give me an extension and hence VFMC and being part of the broader government and the public sector. So I have always deliberately looked for different experiences, ones that would challenge me and to create breadth. So then I, you know, there are many different things that I could get involved in. Mm. What what were the lessons from something like Plum? I mean, that would have been a really interesting environment. So startup plus JV that you've then been able to bring to some of the work that you do now. I think one of the um, amazing lessons there was about building culture. Uh, now, that was an opportunity in part to build culture from the ground up, but it also was an opportunity about role modelling actually as the CEO of that organisation. So, you know, we, we recruited pretty much everyone uh, from scratch and so I was always part of that recruitment process and making sure the consistency of values, of behaviours and also that the people, every person we brought in was adding capability but was going to fit from a cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. One of the things I did early on there was, you know, in a startup organisation, a small organisation, you really have to pitch in. Uh, so I used to sit on the reception uh, a couple of days a week uh, so the receptionists could have lunch and we rotated that amongst uh, different people. Now, that was really important from a role modelling and a symbolism perspective, but I also got to greet prospective clients as they came in through the door. So it gave people a sense of our culture but also then reinforced the values of our brand as mm. well. I bet. I bet you learned a thing or two while you were sitting on there as well. <laughs> 
That's so good. We've, t- we've looked back a little bit. Can we look forward? I'd like to ask one final question, actually, Lisa, around your legacy. You know, you are leading uh, a really forward-thinking, quite exciting organisation that's absolutely critical to the success of us here in Victoria um, at a really challenging time. What, what do you want to be doing in the next few years? What is the impact that you really want to have in the next few years? Well, I always see my role as being the temporary steward of whatever it is I'm leading at that point in time because I think everything we do is laying a foundation for the next phase, Mm. uh, for the next team of people as well. Uh, And so I have always had that lens in mind that I am part of the journey of this organisation doesn't stop and start uh, with me. So we've been building on this evolving transformation and building some really strong foundations about investment strategies, technologies, leadership capability and trying to broaden our bench strength and really develop people to do many different things. So the next period of time for us is how do we really continue to build on that and create, you know, a much more adaptable, scalable investment system or platform or set of capabilities Mm. that can evolve with the state of Victoria. I mean, the state of Victoria has it today and will have into the future many different challenges and we have an ability to to help with that directly or indirectly, but also our clients who are very significant public authorities for Victoria who the citizens of Victoria rely on. So how can we continue to be adaptive and scalable uh, as an investment capability for the state. Mm. So we're then looking at, well, how do we optimise our investment decision-making and really bring together the wonderful talent, talented investment professionals we have, Mm. marrying that with data and analytics. So continuing to invest in that, but the people are always primary and paramount uh, to that. And also continuing our investment stewardship as well as we play an important role in how, you know, where we put the money uh, of the state and that is in the right places, but also to deliver the right investment returns. Mm. We're also looking at how do we continue to simplify our structures and processes. And one of the delightful things about leading an organisation such as VFMC, it is full of incredibly smart people Mm. uh, who come from all walks of life and we have very diverse organisation. But one of the things incredibly smart people can do is they can build complexity Mm. because they can. Mm. Uh, And and so it's how to, and that builds up over time. So how do we design for a, a more simplified future that enables us again to be agile and respond to our clients and the state's changing needs? Mm-hmm. And then the third plank is very much about this future readiness around our culture and capability. Mm-hmm. You know, we have been trying to broaden people, move them across different asset classes or mm-hmm. even between operations uh, and investments. Yeah. This next wave is definitely building uh, on that, but it's really about enabling that culture and capability in a much more distributed and digitally driven environment. Even being able to talk across video and be able to have impact and influence and communicate Mm. are skills that we need to continue to build uh, with our Mm. people as well. So they go on. I want everyone at VFMC 
to have wanted VFMC on their brand, maybe mm. on their CV, the VFMC brand on their CV, maybe more than once in their career, and for others to want it on their CVs as well. Mm. What a great way to bring it home. So for that, for the VFMC brand to be really aspirational for people who are in the door or maybe going to join in the future. I think that's a nice legacy to to leave on there. Thank you so much for this conversation, Lisa. There's been an enormous amount of value in here. I've no doubt for anyone who's currently leading a team or uh, maybe in the future as well. So thank you so much for sharing so generously. Uh, And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Fiona. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.